0: Ah, it's summer and you're at the Grand Canyon and you're planning a wonderful hike through the beautiful wilderness without a thought of nuclear in your mind. But then when you hear two creeks below the orphan mine, Horn Creek and
1: Salt Creek, we're both contaminated with uranium. And so hikers who come through the area are warned not to drink from Horn Creek, not to use any water to pack their own water
0: in that part of Grand Canyon. When you hear news like that, you know that you are in the seat we all share. we revisit the problems with uranium mining in the Grand Canyon with Allison Gitlin of the Grand Canyon chapter of the Sierra Club. Then we talk with Mari Inoue of Manhattan Project for a Nuclear-Free World, a group of concerned citizens, educators, health advocates, artists, and lawyers with a mission to raise awareness of the costs, risks, and humanitarian consequences of nuclear energy and nuclear weapons. Plus... Numbnuts of the Week for Outstanding Nuclear Boneheadedness, the nuclear reactor duck and cover report on the latest problems with our crumbling fleet of U.S. nuclear reactors, plus news, attitude, and more honest nuclear information than the stunned European NATO members thought to bring up to Trump during his recent trip. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, May thirtieth, 2017, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting out with the Hanford site in southeast Washington state, the most contaminated site in the United States and one of the ten most contaminated nuclear sites in the world. For the first time in three weeks, there has been no new nuclear accident reported at Hanford. This, after a tunnel collapse on May 9, exposed radioactively contaminated railroad cars to the open air. And then last week, on May 19, radioactivity was found between the walls of a double-sided underground storage tank containing 800,000 gallons of radioactive and highly toxic materials left over from the manufacture of nuclear weapons. The Government Accountability Office was asked on Wednesday, May 24 to take a look at how the aging, contaminated facilities at the Hanford Nuclear Reservation are being monitored and maintained until they can be cleaned up. The request was made by seven bipartisan members of Congress and came after the partial collapse on May 9 of a tunnel that stored highly radioactive waste since the 1960s, with no plans made yet for permanent disposal of the waste. Senator Maria Cantwell, a Democrat from Washington, and the ranking member of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee took lead on the request, which stated, We are concerned that future events could put the safety of workers, the public, and the environment at risk. The event was another harsh reminder of the radioactive and toxic hazards that remain at the Hanford site, as well as the importance of ensuring the site has the resources necessary to expeditiously achieve its cleanup mission. Well, that's easier said than done, because that exact same day, May 24th, Donald Trump revealed his proposed federal budget, and it includes a cut of around $120 million for the Hanford Nuclear Reservation. The budget calls for spending $6.5 billion across the nation to clean up the legacy of nuclear weapons production. Hanford for decades made plutonium for nuclear weapons and is now engaged in a massive environmental cleanup that costs more than $2 billion per year. And yet, the president's budget cut of more than $120 million for the EPA's Richland Operations Office, which deals with many nuclear waste sites and facilities on the sprawling site. It leaves spending nearly flat for the Office of River Protection, which deals specifically with the contents of 177 underground nuclear waste storage tanks that contain some of the most toxic waste and are in close proximity with the Columbia River. The 2018 budget proposal still must go through Congress. As for what's happening on the Hanford site itself, the stories are out, but inconsistencies abound and questions remain. I will be discussing this further on today's final thought. Now for the non-Hanford news. As you heard on last week's Nuclear Hot Seat, it has happened. Senators Blunt and McCaskill have introduced a bill to help the families of Westlake Landfill. By reintroducing legislation to transfer remediation authority over the illegally buried nuclear waste on that Westlake landfill site, from the Environmental Protection Agency to the Army Corps of Engineers and their FOOSRAP program. In Pennsylvania, Exelon, the slumlord owners of Three Mile Island, site of the United States' worst commercial nuclear power accident, says it will shut down the plant in 2019 unless it gets financial rescue from Pennsylvania. Save your money, Pennsylvania. Let it shut down. In New Hampshire, Westinghouse Electric has issued a lockout notice to 172 union employees at its nuclear reactor manufacturing facility. Just what you want, scabs making nuclear reactor parts. Speaking of nuclear reactors, duck! (laughs) And cover report. Reportable incidents at Sequoia in Tennessee... Susquehanna in Pennsylvania, two different ones at Cooper in Nebraska, and one at Three Mile Island. And now for a really good nuclear time. Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed. None that sound of the week. On Tuesday evening, May 23rd, 2017. TV viewers in parts of southern New Jersey saw a sudden warning flash across their TV screens right in the middle of prime time. A civil authority has issued a NUCLEAR POWER PLANT WARNING, all caps, for the following counties' areas, listing Cumberland and Salem in New Jersey. The New Jersey Office of Emergency Management said the nuclear power plant warning was created as part of a training exercise, and as a result of a coding error, the message was publicly broadcast. No word from local hospitals as to a sudden uptick in cardiac events or panic attacks. And that's why, New Jersey Office of Emergency Management, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's of the week. In Spain on May 23rd, a fire at the Asco nuclear plant shut down its combustible fuel recharging and discharging to avoid a nuclear disaster. The blaze started due to water dripping onto the standard electric supply bar switches during recharging. Oh, Canada, your federal government has announced that it will not pay anything more for northern Saskatchewan uranium mine cleanup. Expected cost for remediation of the Gunnar Mine in northern Saskatchewan has swelled ten times, and Ottawa is saying, Eh, find the money yourself. At issue is millions of tons of radioactive tailings and waste rock left when the mine closed in 1964. In England, on Friday, May 26, solar power accounted for almost one quarter of electricity generated in the U.K. at lunchtime, a record that exceeded the combined output of the country's eight nuclear power stations. That's right, cloudy, foggy England, more solar than nuke. And in Japan, to relieve stress and anxiety among evacuee children who still have not returned to their homes more than six years after the nuclear reactor accident at Fukushima, school administrators have decided to offer them lessons in traditional Japanese stand-up comedy. The children are receiving eight-hour courses in Mansai, a traditional Japanese mix of stand-up, stage, sketch show, and clowning. While Fukushima is definitely not a laughing matter, it seems that clowns and fools are the only ones who get to tell the truth anymore. May there be a future John Stewart amongst them. We'll have our featured interviews in just a moment, but first, I know that you are a caring person. You care about the environment, about future generations, about doing what you can to make the world a better place. That's why you care about getting honest, verifiable nuclear news. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to this show. What we set out to provide every week is verifiable information you can trust, sourced and checked, plus interviews with people who are genuine experts on aspects of the nuclear industry that the nukesters would rather you not know. In order to bring you this show every week, we incur costs, and that's where we need your help. Now is a perfect time to show your appreciation for the show with a donation of any size, as a one-time assist or a monthly recurring donation. In two weeks, it's our sixth anniversary. So how about a $6 donation? Or something in multiples of six? We make it easy for you to help us. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red donate button. Know that I am really grateful for whatever you can do to help us meet our expenses so that we can keep Nuclear Hot Seat alive and kicking nuclear wherever it so richly deserves to be kicked. For your assistance in doing this, I am deeply grateful. Summer camping season is upon us and millions of tourists from around the world will be heading to one of the glories of the United States, if not the entire planet, the Grand Canyon. And yet, they will never suspect that they could be getting themselves exposed to uranium contamination from one of the mines in the area. In April of this year, we learned that a wet winter and increased groundwater flow raised water levels at the Canyon uranium mine near the south rim of Grand Canyon National Park and stirred concerns among conservationists who feared the spread of uranium mines could contaminate water across the plateau. The water levels at the Canyon mine were so high that at one point last March, the mine's operator had to spray water into the air to enhance evaporation and increase the amount of water that it was hauling to its White Mesa mill in Utah. With that in mind, we decided to revisit an interview with Allison Gitlin, who coordinates the Campaign to Restore and Protect the Greater Grand Canyon Eco-Region Campaign for the Sierra Club Grand Canyon Chapter. We originally spoke for Nuclear Hot Seat number 273 from September 13, 2016. Note that at the time we talked, Barack Obama was still president. Allison Gitlin the Conservation Coordinator for Restore and Protect the Greater Grand Canyon Campaign of the Sierra Club Grand Canyon Chapter.
2: Allison Giplin, welcome back to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for having me. Allison, we talked back in February of 2015 about uranium mining in the Grand Canyon. But for those who may be new to the issue or need a refresher course, give us some background so we can understand the context.
1: There is a long history of uranium mining in the Grand Canyon region. There are over 500 abandoned uranium mines on the Navajo Nation in the northeast corner of the state. And there have been historically several mine claims and developing mines north and south of Grand Canyon. In the 80s, the price of uranium dropped, and some of the mines that were in development or had been operational went on to what's called standby mode, where they were just left the fence up, but there were no operations going. And when the price of uranium spiked in the middle of the last decade, all of a sudden we started seeing a ton of claims being established around Grand Canyon. So by 2008, there were a couple thousand claims around Grand Canyon. Starting in 2012, there began to be a limit on new mines. The Obama administration declare that there would be no new uranium mining around Grand Canyon for 20 years, that is the longest that a presidential administration can create such a moratorium without an act of Congress. And so right now, we're four years into that, and there's supposed to be science happening during that time, but of course, the science is being funded with a very limited budget. So there's not a whole lot of science moving forward from what we hear but there are a few mines that have been allowed to operate that were considered to be valid claims that existed
2: before the time of the moratorium. There was an environmental impact statement back in 1986 that cited one of the mines in the area, the Orphan Mine, as an example of how mining could be done safely. This was their term at the time. What's been discovered there in the ensuing 20 years?
1: So the Orphan Mine is literally on the edge of Grand Canyon. It's within Grand Canyon National Park, and it was a grandfathered-in claim. It was originally a copper mine, and that mine, as you say, was cited as being safe uranium mining without impact. Well, after the environmental impact statement for another uranium mine, the Canyon Mine, cited that as an example of safe mining, the Environmental Protection Agency later went in and did some examinations of the area, and they found that soil at the surface contaminated with uranium quite a distance outside of the fence line. The head frame that was there was hot. It was radioactive. And two creeks below the orphan mine, Horn Creek and Salt Creek, were both contaminated with uranium. And so hikers who come through the area are warned not to drink from Horn Creek, not to use any water to pack their own water in that part of Grand Canyon. And, of course, wildlife can't read signs, so they
2: are still using the water. What was the result of the 2010 USGS study of groundwater contamination at sites that had previously been mined around the Grand Canyon?
1: There were 15 springs that were associated with mining that showed contamination and 5 wells that were associated with mining that showed contamination. Pretty much every single place that the U.S. Geological Survey looked for surface contamination, soil contamination associated with mines, they found it. So all of these, you know, supposedly reclaimed, restored mines, every single one of them had some level of soil contamination, and in some cases, for example, the Canab North Mine, which was a mine that had gone on standby for decades, for like 20 years, it had left this pile of rock on site, and the wind had just been blowing that, and the U.S. Geological Survey measured a bunch of soil samples, and they never actually found the edge of how far out that contamination had gone. In other cases, they found that there were places where floods had come through, and exposed some buried contamination and actually washed it downstream quite a ways. And in that report, they said that they weren't sure that that could be cleaned up because they couldn't tell how far down it had gone, and it would be difficult to identify all of the rock that had washed
2: down from these piles, these ore piles. Now there is a current threat with the canyon uranium mines. Tell us why, even with a 20-year moratorium, the canyon mine has become a threat again.
1: Some of the mines are considered to be viable or validated claims. And what this means is that they're economically viable claims, supposedly. So they have demonstrated that there's actually ore that should be mined or, you know, that can be mined, I should say. And they have demonstrated that they could do this and make a profit those mines are being allowed to move forward to develop or to continue operating, and King and & Mine is one of these. It started developing in the 80s, never reached the ore. The price of the uranium dropped. It went on standby for almost 30 years, and now 30 years later, it is drilling down to the ore. They estimate it will take about another year to drill down to the ore. And because they have supposedly an economically viable claim, they are being allowed to develop. Now, that is really questionable because a couple of years ago, the price of uranium started to drop again. Kenyan mine again put its operations on hold for a year. So what is considered an economically viable claim when the price of uranium is so volatile and it moves up and down, this mine is close enough on the edge of viability that in the middle of reopening – just shut down for a year right
2: still the government seems to be behind it or at least the arizona department of environmental quality is issuing or has issued new air quality permits to three uranium mines within 20 miles of the grand canyon including this one what's wrong with this picture (laughs) there's a lot of
1: things wrong with this picture You know, the Environmental Protection Agency can only monitor certain things. A lot is really left up to the state when it comes to uranium mining. And so the Arizona Department of Environmental Quality issued both the aquifer protection permits that are supposed to protect the groundwater and the air quality permits for these mines. So the aquifer protection permits, I mean, these things are pathetic. They were like four pages long. And they basically just said, well, there's no groundwater in contact with these mines, so we're fine, totally ignoring the fact that groundwater recharge happens through the areas where this uranium is found. The air quality permits that are in the process of getting reissued are a little bit more extensive, but... I found them to be equally problematic. Uh, For example, the radon emissions, the way that they were monitoring or limiting radon emissions was actually as a function of how much ore was moved. So there was no hard cap on how much these mines could release as far as radon. They just could release a certain amount of radon per unit of rock that they moved, which I see as a real problem. As far as dust control... They have sensors within the mine area and also 100 feet outside the mine area, and they test the sensors 100 feet out, like once a year, and if those are found to be contaminated, then they increase their monitoring to quarterly, and they make some, you know, simple adjustments, and then if, if that increases again, then they actually have to stop contaminating, you know, putting controls, but There's not anything that says that you have to restore these areas, that if you find contamination off-site, you need to clean up that contamination. It just says you have to monitor more often. And there's no requirements to do things like put walls around the ore piles or covers on the ore piles until after contamination has been found. And we've seen that there's been contamination at every other mine that we've looked at. So this isn't a question of, if it's a question of when and these mines don't have to do anything to prevent that when they only have to go in afterwards and say oopsie and you know make a half half-assed effort to prevent future contamination it's just
2: stunning because do they bother to consider the economic of the tourist industry of the Grand Canyon, and the fact that people from around the world go there to enjoy the natural beauty and aren't expecting uranium contamination.
1: No, and there's, there's a couple aspects to that. I mean, one is the very real effect that this mine could have, not only on Grand Canyon National Park, but on the Havasupai tribe who also depend on tourism and have these beautiful, world-renowned waterfalls on the reservation And if that water gets contaminated, you can't clean it up, right? And, you know, same thing in Grand Canyon National Park. If these springs are contaminated, then the hikers and backpackers that rely on them, not to mention the wildlife, but, you know, as far as human impact, those springs become off limit, and, you know, it's just tough luck, right? There's no accountability. There's no, we don't know how to clean this up. The other aspect of it is the trucks that are going to be on the road. So you've got a high-volume of tourists. If you've ever driven a Grand Canyon National Park extension skate, you know there's a Mm -hmm. high-volume of tourists on the road. And we're going to have 10 to 12 trucks per day, so 20 to 24, including the return trip sharing the road with tourists and residents of these areas they're going to make their way through williams arizona flagstaff arizona cameron Kayenta, tuba city you know they're going to go through the navajo nation on their way to the mill which is in blanding utah and so these trucks are going to be sharing the road with not only the tourists but the residents There is very little plan for what to do if there's an accident. The last I heard was they were going to call somebody down from landing. So, you know, if a truck turns over in a rainstorm in a community, then there's just uranium washing away, right? So there's really no viable plan for how they're going to deal with cleanup. There's no viable plan for how they're going to notify nearby residents. It's going to be up to the operator or the emergency response team or the truckers to decide if they want to notify the nearby residents if there is a problem. And then, you know, I think beyond the actual real threat that comes with this, because these trucks also, I should mention, are only going to be covered by a tarp. So any dust they pick up on site or any dust that's within is going to be flying in the wind, and we all know northern Arizona has a lot of wind. But there's also the other risk, which is the media risk and the economic risk. If there is an uranium truck accident reported on the road to Grand Canyon, is that where you want to plan your next vacation? Not necessarily. And so there's another risk that's this perception of risk that people have when they're planning where they're going to travel to and if they want to deal with that. And so I think it's very important for our northern Arizona business community to understand
2: what they are contending with as well. The Havasupai Tribe, Sierra Club, and other conservation groups are suing the U.S. Forest Service over the canyon mine going back into operation. What are some of the points of contention that you're arguing
1: For one, we don't believe that the canyon mine really should have been considered an economically viable mine and allowed to move forward. We think that there should have been a reexamination of the plan of operations and environmental impact statement because there is significant new information. For example, Red Butte, which is a traditional cultural property of the Havasupai, wasn't even established as a traditional cultural property at that time. Now it is. The orphan mine was not considered to be contaminated at that time, and now we know it was. Based on those two things alone, there should have been a reexamination of the science and the cultural values before this mine was allowed to move forward. So we think that there needs to be a new public process or a new evaluation of whether the canyon mine should be there. The other thing that's going on in the legal realm is that The mining industry does not want this 20-year ban to stand, and so they are trying to overturn that ban, and we have been supporting the federal government in keeping that ban in place.
2: In late August, there were a series of public hearings regarding the proposed reopening of the canyon mine. Were you in attendance in any of these, and if so, what's your sense of how they went? I
1: attended the hearing that was in Flagstaff. There were three hearings: one in Fredonia, one in Tuba City, which is on the Navajo Nation, and one in Flagstaff. The one in Fredonia I've heard was extremely lightly attended. The other two, interestingly enough, were on election day. They were on the day of our primary election, which was very frustrating because I think a lot of were really torn about whether to attend this hearing. Whether to go vote, you know, if you have a real work day and you can't necessarily take a bunch of time off. I should mention the Tuba City hearing was during the day. It seemed almost rigged to get as little attendance as possible. Mm-hmm. And I heard that that one was pretty lightly attended. The one in Flagstaff was in the evening. We actually had a lot of people who came off the reservation to attend that one in the evening. I would say there were 40 or 50 people there, and maybe 30 spoke. Really, really compelling stories. I heard a lot of healthcare workers who were telling tragic stories of what they have seen, the illness that they have seen from uranium mining in this region. I heard a lot of people who had lost family members giving very passionate stories about why they don't want to see any more mining in this area. I heard really rational scientific reasons from several members of the community on why they didn't think that these mines should move forward, why the science didn't justify mining this region any longer. And I heard really good suggestions for how these permits could be made more effective and, you know, how we could be more preventative instead of reactionary when we issue these permits. We'll see if any of those comments were taken into consideration. You know, from my previous experience, the Arizona Department of Environmental Quality will say thank you very much and then just go ahead and issue the permits.
2: Yeah, unfortunately, that is so often the case. What's next for you and the Sierra Club in fighting against Canyon Mine and the rest of the uranium mining?
1: Well, we're going to continue the legal battle to oppose Canyon Mine because. Unfortunately, that is the last realm of action that we seem to have to fight that. But what we are trying to do is we are trying to convince President Obama to declare a greater Grand King and Heritage National Monument, and that would prevent new uranium mining in the region. It still wouldn't do anything to fight the existing mines. But it would put a permanent ban on new uranium mining around Grand Canyon. And so we are encouraging people to contact President Obama and let him know that they want this to happen before he leaves office. It would be a great legacy. It would be a great way to celebrate the centennial of the National Park Service. It is long overdue that the plateaus on either side of Grand Canyon are as protected as the canyon itself because we all know water flows downhill, and we need to protect what's above in order to protect what's below.
2: Allison, thanks for the update. Thanks for the great work that you and the others there are doing. And thanks again for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat.
0: You are so welcome. Thank you for what you do. That was Allison Gitlin of the Sierra Club Grand Canyon Chapter. We'll have links up to their site and the talking points on stopping Grand Canyon uranium mining up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 273. Allison Gitlin coordinates the Campaign to Restore and Protect the Greater Grand Canyon Ecoregion Campaign for the Sierra Club Grand Canyon Chapter. We will have a link up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 310. But wait, there's more! Here's today's second interview. Mare Inouye is a dedicated volunteer at the Manhattan Project for a Nuclear-Free World. This is a group of concerned citizens, educators, health advocates, artists, and lawyers with a mission to raise awareness of the costs, risks, and humanitarian consequences of nuclear energy and nuclear weapons. Here, she talks about the issues surrounding the U.S.-Japan Nuclear Energy Cooperation Treaty and why we really don't want it to be renewed. Mari Inoue, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank
2: you so much for inviting me to your show. Let's start out with an understanding of what this current Manhattan Project is, which is actually the Manhattan Project for a Nuclear-Free World. What is the group and what is its mission?
3: Um, Manhattan Project for a Nuclear-Free World is a group of concerned citizens, educators, health advocates, artists, and lawyers with a mission to raise awareness of the cost, risk, and humanitarian consequences of nuclear energy and nuclear weapons. The group grew out of discussions with representatives of diverse civil society and grassroots groups who gathered in Mehan in March or February 2002 to plan hosting events with evacuees from Fukushima
2: to commemorate the first anniversary of Fukushima nuclear disaster. What are some of the events that the group has put forward?
3: Well, we have done some educational seminars, and also we co-organized peaceful protests to raise awareness on nuclear power and nuclear weapon issues.
2: What is your background, and how did you become involved in this work?
3: Between fall 2010 and until March 2015, I was a New York representative of Japanese Human Rights Organization, And during that time, Fukushima happened, and I was able to get involved with the advocacy of raising awareness on the situation in Fukushima by reaching out to other civil society groups and also uh, lobbying at the UN so that we could raise awareness on the seriousness of the nuclear disaster in Japan. And I was able to also get involved in uh, seeing our opinion paper, which was submitted to the TEPCO and also to the Japanese government in 2011, requesting them to change its policies on food safety, decontamination, evacuation, radiation protection, and so on, based on international standards and international precedents and domestic law in order to protect the health of the uh, residents affected by the disaster.
2: What, if any, impact do you feel that position paper had on either TEPCO or the Japanese government?
3: Sometime in March 2012, the Japanese government implemented more strong food safety standards because there was a huge outcry from Japanese citizen groups uh, in late 2011. So I believe that the opinion paper contributed partially on changing policies. But in terms of evacuation, setting evacuation zones, the um, Japanese government has not yet changed its policies, so they still continue to use 20 millisieverts per year standard, which is extremely high. So there are a lot of issues, ongoing issues, in terms of protecting the health
2: and restoring the living environment of residents affected by the nuclear disaster in Fukushima. What is the U.S.-Japan Nuclear Energy Cooperation Treaty and is that its official name or should we know it by another name?
3: Well, the official name is very long. It's called Agreement for the Government of the United States of America and the Government of Japan concerning peaceful uses of nuclear energy.
2: When was that agreement, when was that treaty first put forth and first signed between the two countries the history
3: of nuclear this kind of nuclear energy cooperation treaty is quite long um, between United States and Japan as you know that uh, the World War two ended in 1945 and from 1945 to 1952 Japan was the occupied territory of the United States military even after 1952 United States maintained huge influence within the Japanese society, especially among policymakers. And in 1954, uh, Soviet Union was able to build the world's first nuclear power plant that generated electricity for commercial use, and that gave so much pressure to the U.S. government. So in 1955, the oldest nuclear energy cooperation treaty between the U.S. and Japan was signed and became effective and the United States agreed to lend enriched uranium to Japan and based on this old treaty in 1955 Japan was able to establish two small nuclear reactors for research purposes and after that two countries amended the treaty in 1968 and based on these agreements Japan started to promote nuclear energy as national energy policy and started to build nuclear power plants across the country. And the current um, U.S.-Japan Nuclear Energy Corporation Treaty was amended and became effective in July 1988 with the 30-year maturity date.
2: So with the 30-year maturity date, it sounds like it is coming due for renewal for 2018. Is that correct?
3: Yes, that's correct. The treaty will mature in July 2018. And there are several scenarios, foreseeable scenarios after that.
2: What do we need to pay attention to about this treaty and what are those issues? The
3: first one is, of course, that both governments do nothing
2: and the treaty will be
3: automatically extended. But there's no new specific maturity date because the current treaty doesn't mention anything about the next uh, maturity date. The second scenario is that both governments decide to set a new maturity date of the new treaty, which could be the fully the same as the current treaty, but setting a new maturity date requires congressional approval. The third scenario is that governments decide to fully or partially amend the agreement and start negotiations. Important to note that our current treaty, which became effective in July, 1988, started its negotiation in 1982 so it took more than five years than the previous nuclear energy cooperation treaty, or even you know setting a new maturity day also required the uh, congressional approval. And the fourth scenario is that both countries terminate the treaty at the end of the maturity day, and there will be no nuclear energy cooperation treaty between the United States and Japan. But which is very unlikely because the United States currently has similar kind of nuclear energy cooperation agreement with dozens of countries around the world.
2: What are some of the issues that are involved with extension of the treaty? There are so many issues associated with
3: the current treaty and the extension of the treaty. First of all, the treaty is the backbone of Japan's nuclear energy policy. So if the treaty is extended, Japan will continue to promote nuclear energy as its energy policy and will restart more nuclear reactors. Currently, there are only two nuclear power plants operating. One is in Sendai nuclear power plant and the other is Ikata nuclear power plants. Second issue is that under the treaty, Japan is allowed to reprocess spent fuel, which is not allowed to any other non-nuclear weapon state. This creates tensions among countries in Northeast Asia. And because of this, Japan currently has 48 tons of separated plutonium, which Japanese government don't know what to do with it. And Japanese government hasn't made it clear as to their plutonium policy. So it depends on who controls the country, Japan could be a potential nuclear weapon state. And think about security implication of Japan's plutonium stockpile and the U.S.-Japan treaty have in Northeast Asia and rest of the world. And also, if the treaty is extended, it is very likely that a Rokkasho reprocessing plan in Japan might be started in 2018. And Rokkasho is a processing plan which could reprocess spent fuel, and it is said that it could separate up to an additional eight tons of plutonium annually in the facility. So such a large amount of stockpile of separated plutonium in Japan is a proliferation threat, could become a target to nuclear terrorism, could become a serious environmental
2: disaster if another nuclear accident happens. Given that the United States is now involved in a lot of at least aggressive posturing and talk with North Korea regarding nuclear weapons and the possible use of them, is that having any impact, or do you think that will have any impact, on the agreement between the United States and Japan? Well, I don't think it will have
3: much impact. However, giving the authority to Japan as to reprocessing spent fuel to separate plutonium could be the serious security threat to the region, and that could get more tension in that region. So given the political climate at this time, we need to review whether it's best interest for the rest of the world to allow Japan to have such ability to reprocess and
2: fuel. If there is no action taken and the treaty is extended, does it still have to have any kind of congressional approval or it's just automatic and then, as you stated before, because there's no date on it, it would just continue on forever.
3: It will continue forever.
2: So we don't
3: know when the next maturity date will be. But if they don't do anything, then the treaty, according to the article 16 of the treaty, the agreement will shall continue in effect to the extent applicable.
2: So it sounds like it would be a good idea if we stopped the extension of this treaty. Is there any action we can take? Or rather, I should say, what action can be taken that perhaps the listeners can participate in that will help bring attention to this agreement and also Mm -hmm. do whatever is possible to stop the extension from taking place?
3: Yeah, I think that's a really good question. What we can do is that we can reach out to our elected officials, such as members of the U.S. Congress, by letting them know that the maturity date of this nuclear energy cooperation treaty with Japan is approaching. And we can talk about some of the issues associated with the reprocessing of spent fuel that is allowed in Japan. We can also uh, emphasize the importance of implementing nuclear-free policies by terminating the treaty, we can also raise concerns about impacts that the government in Japan's plutonium policy have in the Northeast region and the rest of the world. We can also talk about security implications of Japan's stockpile of 48 tons of separated plutonium, yeah, in addition to uh, starting of local reprocessing plan, which is scheduled to be started in late 2018. Um, because Okasha could separate up to additional eight tons of plutonium annually. We can also raise concern that the Japanese government has not made it clear as to its policies on its use, management, storage, disposal, and security of 48 tons of plutonium. We can say that a large amount of stockpile of separated plutonium is a proliferation threat, could become a target to nuclear terrorism, Could become an environmental disaster if another nuclear accident happens. It's a threat to the security of the region. We can also talk about issues associated with the reprocessing of nuclear fuel, including excessive costs and safety risks. We can emphasize that the agreement only benefits some people in the nuclear industry in the US, and it's not the best interest of American people. We can also say that promoting nuclear energy in Japan which is a country with many active earthquake faults and active volcanoes, only creates more environmental risk of having another nuclear disaster. We can also say that instead of extending treaty, United States and Japan could jointly cooperate to discuss what they can do to secure the safety of the region or discuss alternative energy policies and implement nuclear-free policies. Or review issues associated with the stock, plutonium stockpile in Japan. They can conduct risk assessment and comprehensive reviews on reprocessing spent fuel in Japan, how to decommission existing nuclear power plants, or how to manage and securely store radioactive waste materials from nuclear facilities, including the one from pre-pulled nuclear power plants after the disaster.
2: That's a lot of information, and I know many of the listeners won't have any previous awareness of either the issues or the treaty. Is there any sample wording that they can pick up from a website or a Facebook page that they could then paste into, say, a letter or an email to an elected representative?
3: I think we can work on that, and once it's ready, I could uh, send you the information to you, so that uh, perhaps you could uh, help us share that to your listener. And also, I'd like to um, share uh, one of the action plans that Manhattan project for nuclear
2: free world. That's what I, that's open, that's I gonna, that's going to be my next question. That's that's the last oh, okay. question I have here. Okay. Okay. So. So we'll keep an eye open for that wording, and I'll link to it on the website when it becomes available. Now, does the group, does the Manhattan Project for a Nuclear-Free World have any action plans coming up?
3: Yes. Uh, We are co-organizing a contingent to oppose the extension of the U.S.-Japan Nuclear Energy Corporation Treaty and join the Women's March to Ban the bomb which will be held at noon on June 17th in New York City. And it will be wonderful if other organizations and groups could join our contingent and march together to raise awareness on this issue, because this treaty itself is not well known in this country. And I think that we need to reach out to as many people as possible about the existence of this treaty and the implication of this treaty. Um, and I heard that uh, there might be a similar action on June 17th in Tokyo, Japan, so that uh, we are hoping that there will be a joint effort by citizens of both the U.S. and Japan to raise awareness on the issues associated with the extension of the agreement between the U.S. and Japan.
2: That would be very powerful. Now, if Thank you. listeners, Now, if listeners wish to learn more, Uh, about the group and about your work. What is your website? Where can they go to get more information? The website is
0: mp-nuclear-free.com. That was Mari Inouye of Manhattan Project for a Nuclear-Free World. We will, of course, link to her website. And she wanted you to know that the group now has a Facebook page for the event taking place on June 17th. This is an action in New York on the steps of the New York Public Library at 42nd Street and 5th Avenue. Great place to go because if they read, they think. So we've got a chance. Activist shout-out! If you are in New York City on Sunday, June 4, you've got a chance to go to a really hot nuclear event. Cindy Folkers of Beyond Nuclear, Heidi Huttner, Director of Sustainability Studies and Associate Dean, School of Marine and Atmospheric Sciences at Stony Brook University, and Leona Morgan of Diné No Nukes will be speaking on nuclear injustices and denial, misogyny, and environmental racism in the nuclear story. Ah, wish I could be there. Wish it was live-streamed. It's going to be taking place, as I said, Sunday, June 4, from 3.40 to 5.40 p.m., at Room 1.65 at the John Jay College for Criminal Justice New Building in New York City. The address is 524 West 59th Street, and if you can make it, go there. These are three phenomenal women, phenomenal speakers, with phenomenal messages to share. And the opposite of New York City has got to be Upper Saskatchewan where our friend Marius Paul has let us know that there's going to be a prayer paddle at Patterson Lake, June 10 through 14. That's because Fission Uranium Corporation, which is 20% owned by China, plans a devastating drainage of a large lake in order to create an open-pit uranium mine and a vast radioactive tailings pit. Patterson Lake is an hour and a half north of La Loche, Saskatchewan, And you're being asked to bring your spirit, your latent warrior wiles, survivor-hunter instinct, medicine bundle, your shield, musical instruments, hand drums, your song, your tune, in order to make that devastated area rock. Wish I could be there with you as well. Here's today's final thought. And as promised, it returns to Hanford. As I stated at the top of this show, there are inconsistencies in the stories about the latest Hanford problems that raise many questions, none of which have been satisfactorily answered. Of the tunnel collapse, the Department of Energy says no radiation was released. But the fact of the tunnel collapse was discovered by workers routinely checking out the site before doing work there who got unusually high radiation readings on their monitors as they approached the area. So was there radiation or was there no radiation? There's been no explanation of the spikes in Gamma-5 radiation recorded by the EPA monitoring stations at Richland, 23 miles from the tunnel collapse, and Corvallis, Oregon, more than 300 miles away. The Richland spike, first showed up the night before the incident was discovered, leading to the next question. When did the tunnel start collapsing? An EPA official in the Richland office initially stated that the accident could have started as early as four days before it was reported. That particular factoid has never been addressed. It just vanished from the conversation. So when did the tunnel collapse start? Where did the gamma-5 radiation spikes come from, and how were they recorded the night before discovery? As for the second event, the contamination of workers' clothing at the double-sided tank when a robot checking between the two walls brought back the unexpected gift of radioactive materials. The wording in reports and news stories has gotten wonky. Initially, Tweets posted by Susanna Frame of King 5 News in Seattle as coming from an on-site source read, Hanford workers' clothing contaminated in three spots, shoe, shirt, knee area, not wearing white suit as no contamination expected. But later reports minimize the contamination as having, quote, spread to the leg of the protective clothing worn by a Hanford tank farm worker, end quote. Now, protective clothing implies a hazmat suit, and I have never known of a hazmat suit referred to as a shirt, a shoe. So what was the protective clothing? Later articles mentioned the workers using air respirators to protect against breathing chemical vapors associated with tank waste but this was not mentioned in the initial tweets and articles immediately after the accident. Finally, in this Hanford mystery, there's the matter of languaging. The contamination is being blamed on some old contamination that was just hanging around between the walls of the tank and it got kicked up by the robotic crawler. The DOE, and this is a quote from an article, does not believe there is a leak in the double-shell tank, No waste is believed to have breached the outer shell to contaminate the soil beneath the tank. And reports are littered with lots of mayhaves and maybes as well. But let's look at the DOE's choice of wording, repeatedly relying on the word believe. According to the dictionary, believe means to accept something as true, to feel sure of the truth of it, to accept the statement of someone as true, to hold something as an opinion, to think or suppose. That is such wiggle-wonk wording of alt-facts and cover-ups. Look, guys, we are dealing with nuclear. To suppose or opine or feel or accept as true is not good enough. We need incontrovertible truth stated in plain, bald, rock-solid wording with no wiggle room allowed. What we're getting from Hanford is language manipulation. Why? Are they covering something up? Are they trying to manage possible panic? And even to call it panic is manipulation. When faced with nuclear uncertainty, a situation that may or may not be dangerous, but we just don't know for sure yet, taking action with all speed strikes me as a prudent, sane, and logical response. I would rather get out of Dodge and later be embarrassed for overreacting than trust the assurances I receive and take no action only to later face the horror of ultimate negative consequences I could have easily avoided if only... That's what haunts me about Three Mile Island, because it took my friends and myself three days of staying there before we realized how bad it was. And at that point, there was no telling how much radiation we'd already been exposed to. And always remember, with nuclear their first response to any accident is always going to be, no radiation leak, no problem, pay no attention to that glowing little man behind the curtain. That's the nuclear playbook. So what is the truth about Hanford? Here's hoping we learn it through the General Accountability Office, which is mandating a review of how the Hanford Nuclear Reservation is being monitored and maintained. And at the same time, we're facing the Trump-proposed budget cut of $120 for Hanford. Great place to cut funding. And what timing! Millions for defense, but not one cent for cleanup or waste management of radioactive materials with a half-life of 24,000 years and a radiologically dangerous life of 480,000 years. To be as blunt as broadcast radio will allow, when it comes to nuclear... We, the people, are so expletived. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, May 30, 2017. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from TriCityHerald.com and the excellent reporting of Annette Carey, King5TV and the excellent reporting of Susanna Frame. JapanTimes.co.jp, WITF.org, Blunt.senate.gov, UtilityDive.com, NuclearStreet.com, HuffingtonPost.com, CommonDreams.org, EurekaAlert.org, Forbes.com, ThinkProgress.com, NewYorkTimes.com, GlobalNews.ca, FT.com, RT.com, NEARS.org, AZCentral.com, The Psycho Nuclear apologists Who Sold Their Souls for the Paycheck They Get for Writing Propaganda for World Nuclear News, The U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission events reports, courtesy Erica Gray of Nuclear Free Virginia. And a shout-out to the Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers who bring stories to my attention, cheer me on, and help support the work of the show. Thank you, guys and gals. All of you, come on down to the Nuclear Hot Seat blog site on Facebook, where, with only 31 more likes, we will have hit 2,000, 2,000, 2,000. That's the Nuclear Hot Seat blog page, the one with the logo on it. Join, like, and share our posts. Theme music for this show, written by me, sung by Merrily Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2017, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution with my name, the name of the show, and a link to the website is provided. A reminder that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, delivered with as much humor as is humanly possible, take a moment to send a supporting donation to NuclearHotSeat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heart History Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that the cure for global warming is not nuclear winter. See? You've all had your nuclear wake-up call. Now don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat.